Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Last episode, the Dutch Revolt got their high-profile martyrs with the execution of Egmont and Horn, while William the Silent tried to invade the Low Countries and reignite the revolt from outside. He was eventually pushed back everywhere he invaded, but he gained a foothold in the waterlogged provinces of Holland and Zeeland, thanks to Dutch pirates taking one city and others quickly following. This time, with the Duke of Alba gone and a real revolt taking place, the Dutch finally start getting some lasting victories. If you're enjoying the series, please go rate on iTunes. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com and you can always email me almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. One more thing before we get started. I've gotten some feedback that iTunes isn't necessarily putting all of my podcasts in the correct order, and there's some confusion about which episodes are actually profiling the Dutch Revolt, or how to find the beginning of the series. So what I'm going to do is call this Season 4, even though it really started halfway through Season 3. And what that means is the first three episodes that we've already gone through, I'm going to rename. I'm not going to re-record them, but I am going to re-upload them with the proper labels. So if in the last week you've gotten a couple of extra downloads, those are just the old episodes getting updated with new names. And with that, this episode is now episode 4-4, The Dutch Revolt, Part 4, Three Sovereigns and Don Juan. And this is The Almost Forgotten. Despite some successes by the Dutch, the Spanish had rebuffed William's schemes to free Flanders and Wallonia, but the sea beggars, essentially Dutch pirates, had given the Prince of Orange, Holland, and Zeeland as a base of operations. And although these two places were the only ones in real rebellion, and parts of them were still under Spanish control, they had also forced out the Duke of Alba, who had brutally put down insurrection, Protestantism, and anything else he wanted, really, for six years. The new governor of the Netherlands that Philip sent, Luis de Requesens, was sent to signify a kinder, gentler suzerain. Not that Philip allowed him to concede any of the points that the Dutch people had asked for. So, practicing the reform religion, or thinking about it, or being friends with someone who does it, was still highly likely to cause your immediate death. But, you know, at least the Duke of Alba was gone. Besides driving people to the brink of rebellion and beyond, the Duke's tax idea hadn't brought in money. So Requesens found himself without any money to pay the troops that he now had garrisoned in cities throughout the territory. The annual cost of the war in the Netherlands was something like two-thirds of the revenue from all the mines in the Spanish Americas each year. It wasn't easy to sustain this brutal despotism. Requesens soon realized why the mighty Spanish Empire was being drained of resources, and the tiny Dutch provinces were able to maintain an adequate, if inferior, force. In a letter to Philip, he wrote, quote, I did not understand how the rebels could maintain such considerable fleets while your majesty could not support a single one. It appears, however, that men who are fighting for their lives, their firesides, their property, and their false religion for their own cause, in short, 
are contented to receive rations only without receiving pay, unquote. It had appeared they were fighting people who were willing to fight even though they weren't getting paid. It's almost as if they thought giving up wasn't really an option. Not that there were a ton of Dutch fighting the Spanish just yet. According to Jeffrey Parker, quote, in 1574, only about 20 towns with a combined population of 75,000 remained faithful to William of Orange, unquote. Even Amsterdam was still in Spanish hands and in Zealand, at the time made up of islands that looked like fingers extending from the Scheldt River into the North Sea as its massive estuary ended the river's journey. The city of Middleburg was under siege by these desperate people, willing to fight only for rations and freedom. Middleburg was an important city, one of the few still held by the Spanish in the province. Today it's the capital of Zealand. The Spanish commander was Cristobal de Mondragon, a 60-year-old Spanish soldier who had been living in the Low Countries for half his life and had gone native but had never gone rebel. Mondragon held out, despite being surrounded on his island by sea beggars. Relief of the siege was a major priority to Requesens, and he ordered a large fleet to sail out from Antwerp and bergen op Zoom in the Duchy of Brabant. In January of 1574, the rebel Dutch forces gathered together on the Scheldt estuary to stop the relief force. William sailed out to discuss strategy with Admiral Boissot, the fleet's leader, before imploring all his captains to fight as if their country's survival depended on it, because it did. Also present were a few ships under the command of Thomas Morgan, an English captain who had been fighting alongside the sea beggars for a few years now. Even though Elizabeth hadn't thrown her full weight behind the rebellion for fear of Spanish reprisals, she was rooting for the Dutch, so she did allow Morgan to raise his own force and lend a hand. Before that, in 1571, Morgan was a member of Parliament in the House of Commons. How very Churchillian. On January 29th, 75 Spanish ships sailed out in formation, which soon became 74 when, on the way out, they fired cannons to salute requisens who watched from the shore, and one of the ships exploded. An ominous sign indeed. As they sailed up the Scheldt, they encountered the sea beggars. At first, they weren't quite sure who was ahead, and when they realized it was the enemy, they had time for just one cannonade. The sea beggars closed quickly to uh, begin the boarding process. It ended up being a rout. Fifteen Spanish ships were taken, all of their crew killed in combat, many probably trying to surrender before the rest were able to escape. Romero, the commander of the Spanish fleet, dove in and swam to safety, where he found requisens who had stood out in the rain and observed the whole Battle of the Scheldt. Romero complained that he had never wanted to command ships. He was a land fighter. That's what you get when you send a land fighter to do that kind of job. With that, Middleburg was abandoned to its fate. But as much as William wanted an unconditional surrender, Mondragon responded by setting a few houses on fire and saying he'd light up the rest of the city before that would happen. Because surrender was much more important than its conditions, William allowed him to surrender honorably as long as he gave 300,000 florins. Mondragon responded by rounding up the cash from the citizens, and he was allowed to leave with his troops and his arms and equipment. Mondragon left in February, 
William entered the city a few days later and replaced some of the magistrates, had everyone swear an oath of loyalty, and restored much of the funds they had just paid as part of the surrender. Why did he ask for 300,000 florins during the surrender, only to give 200,000 back? Probably, he wanted to keep it in the hands of the city, but was afraid Mondragon would make off with it. If this was the case, it was a pretty shrewd maneuver. A victory for William and the rebels helped keep them in charge of the sea, but on land they were still really getting pushed around by the Spanish. In October of the previous year, the city of Leiden in South Holland was put under siege. William didn't have the forces to relieve the siege against the effective Spanish army. For the moment, though, Leiden held out. William's brothers had been in France trying to raise another army. Count John of Nassau, who I've neglected to mention until now, who was older than Louis, had been there tirelessly raising funds. Count Louis, as well as the youngest brother Henry, managed to raise an army from an unexpected place. A group of French and German cavalry had helped escort a different Henry, the Duke of Anjou, to Poland to become their king. Now, he didn't stay long in this job, because his brother Charles IX died, and Henry of Anjou became Henry III, King of France, and had to go back to France. But in 1573, after being marched to Poland, these 2,000 men needed something to do. Going to try to kill the Spanish seemed like a good idea. Lewis led them through the snowy Rhineland to try to link up with William. Unfortunately, many of his forces deserted before they ever got to the Netherlands. By the time they got to Maastricht on the Meuse River in the southeastern Netherlands, the Spanish had time to beef up the garrison. Lewis realized he didn't have the forces to take the city. So he continued north in between the Rhine and the Meuse, and his forces were shadowed by the Spanish. Near the village of Mook, the Spanish crossed the Meuse ahead of him to block his path north into Holland. The two sides had a pretty even amount of infantry, but the rebels outnumbered the Spanish cavalry by more than two to one. Lewis's forces, though, were mutinous. Again, the lack of pay was a pretty big sticking point for these mercenary armies. Lewis kept them together to fight, and the Battle of Mukerheide commenced. The infantry fighting went back and forth until the rebels were finally sent running. Lewis had his cavalry charge and drove an opposing force to the river, but the Spanish counterattack was timed perfectly. Lancers charged at the moment Lewis's forces were recovering from their charge and reloading. It wound up being a complete disaster for the Dutch. Somewhere north of 3,000 were killed, and although their bodies were never found, it is believed that William's brothers Count Lewis and young Henry of Nassau were among the dead. John, William's other brother, survived only because he had been sent by the others two days earlier to try to raise funds in Cologne to pay the soldiers. The disaster for the Dutch was followed by a mutiny for the Spanish. They were again going without pay for over a year. They marched into Antwerp and demanded their back pay. Money was raised from the citizens, and the troops quartered themselves wherever they liked. After a few weeks, 400,000 crowns were delivered and the mutiny was repressed, for the moment. In the meantime, the rebel Admiral Boissot sailed up the Scheldt, possibly in the midst of all this mutinous activity in Antwerp. It's unclear. He destroyed 14 Spanish ships and captured a loyalist admiral before quickly retreating back down the river. 
The Dutch control of the sea was solidifying, and without much dry land to actually take, it would be awfully hard for the Spanish to occupy Holland and Zeeland. After these series of events, the city of Leiden, which had seen momentary relief from its siege so that the Spanish could go deal with Louis, once again found itself surrounded by May of 1574. Leiden is on the Rhine Delta, on a river called the Uderrhein, or Old Rhine. It's where the Rhine used to discharge in Roman days, but in the 1500s, it was a smaller outlet, although still a viable one. Leiden is just what you might imagine a city in Holland to be. It has canals running through the center of town and is surrounded by dikes protecting it from the sea, and it sits at or below sea level. William begged the city to hold out for three months to give him enough time to bring another force to help. The citizens responded that they would be just fine, that the Spanish would never make it in, all that good stuff. The Hollanders were now resolute on determining their own course. Requisins had issued a general pardon for almost anyone who would re-embrace Catholicism. Holland and Zealand, almost completely non-Catholic now, no doubt with some refugees from other parts of the Netherlands, refused to take him up on this. And quite frankly, they probably still believed they'd be quickly betrayed and tied to the stake if they did. Motley wrote that two people, two, came forward and took the pardon. But as time ticked by, May became June, and William couldn't cobble together any forces to save the city. Except, perhaps, for the sea itself. The rebels held most of the sluices and dikes in the area, and they could flood the Spanish out. It was not an easy decision. Relief of one city for the ruination of the harvest was a considerable trade-off. Would saving this city cause everyone else to starve? or become so impoverished they'd give up the fight? Despite William's opinion that this was the way to go, he allowed the States General to deliberate. But they saw it his way, and it was agreed upon to unleash the sea onto the land. According to Motley, on August 3rd, quote, the prince superintended the rupture of the dikes in 16 places. The gates at Shedam and Rotterdam were opened, and the ocean began to pour over the land, unquote. Great. Except the ocean didn't really pour, it sort of trickled over the land. On August 12th, he told Leiden relief was coming. And on the 21st, they told him it had been three months and food was running out. The waters were rising, but at the end of August, it was not yet a foot deep. It wasn't high enough to scare away the Spanish, just high enough to make them miserable. William at this time was struck with a terrible fever and many believed he was at his end. But he continued to dictate plans for relief, including directions to Admiral Boissot on how to proceed. In early September, the Prince of Orange was back on his feet, just as Boissot arrived in the neighborhood, with a few ships stocked with sea beggars. The fleet got as far as the land shiding, which is, for all intents and purposes, a really big levee that was five miles from Leiden. But there they were stuck. First, the water was still about 18 inches below the top of the land shiding, and it was held by Spanish troops. In a daring night raid that somehow succeeded in surprising the defenders, the Dutch rebels were able to take the seawall. Only afterwards did the Spanish realize its strategic importance, and they sent hundreds of soldiers from nearby to take it back, but the Dutch held out, and they immediately set about destroying it, and they sailed through the opening. 
But they didn't get even a mile closer before they found themselves in front of another long dike known as the Greenway. This too had to be ripped from the grasp of the Spanish, and it was, before long, also being destroyed. Beyond this, though, lay a lake which, although wide, offered only a narrow sailing lane. This lane led straight to a bridge occupied by Spanish artillery. Boissat tried to assault the bridge, but had to fall back. The fleet, now so close to Leiden, could do nothing in the shallow water. But then, on the 18th of September, the wind shifted, pushing the sea in, and the waters rose in the lake. Some locals told the Dutch of a way around the bridge now that the waters were higher. They sailed past two villages that were occupied by the Spanish, at least occupied until the soldiers saw a fleet coming on what was dry land a few days before. They tried to fight, but the Dutch, watery tarts that they were, were now in their element, and the Spanish eventually fled. The fleet reached the town of North A, where the Spanish had regrouped, but they fled from this spot too. Unfortunately, the wind also changed at this point, and the waters were so shallow again the fleet became stranded. The people of Leiden, meanwhile, were now starving to death. Hundreds were dying every day, and a plague was spreading, adding to the misery. The Spanish commander offered to accept surrender, and the people of the city had no idea the flotilla was only a couple miles away. Still, though, they refused to capitulate. Then, on the 28th of September, they received word that Boissat was close. On October 1st, a strong storm came in from the west, and the waters of the North Sea rushed into southern Holland. The waters near Leiden rose over a foot in one day, and the fleet moved as soon as it could, which happened to be in the middle of the night. A battle ensued with a few Spanish ships that were nearby, but it was quick, and the armada continued to sail down the South Holland plains. They approached the last fortified towns before Leiden, with defensive walls and Spanish soldiers, and hundreds of Spanish ran out to try to attack the fleet of sea beggars in two feet of water. But again, this was quick work for the Dutch, and they moved on to the final fort, which was the Spanish commander's headquarters, and less than a mile from Leiden. That night, Boissat made plans to attack the fort. It was formidable, and it would not be easy work. In the middle of the night, lights were seen moving around the fortress. Sounds were heard throughout the city and in the fleet that were odd. A massive cracking and crashing made the Dutch think that maybe the Spanish had made a raid in the cover of darkness and had finally taken a part of the city. When the morning came, the truth was learned. The Spanish, not willing to have another amphibious fight with these merchant fishermen turned pirates turned marines, had fled the fortress and abandoned the siege. The sound heard overnight was from a massive piece of the city wall, which had come crashing down thanks to the flooded terrain. It had been just as frightening to the Spanish as it was to the Dutch, and it helped hasten their retreat. If they had just stuck around until morning light, they might have been able to take the town through the destroyed wall before the fleet could make their way in. But that morning, Boissot sailed into the city, and the siege of Leiden was officially over. The sea beggars probably gave people that famous herring, which might have even tasted good after two months of starvation. The Prince of Orange arrived in the city the next day, and he saw firsthand the terrible cost of the siege. A couple of thousand people may have died from starvation and plague. Although it was at great expense, the Spanish had been stymied, and the reality of the difficulties in subduing the region 
must have really set in with the governor. Within a few days, the waters had retreated, the fleet left, and the work of rebuilding the dikes had begun. A university was built in the city the following year by William as recognition of what the city had gone through. Leiden University became the leading university of the Netherlands, and at the time, its founder William still dedicated it to his sovereign, the King of Spain and Duke of Brabant, and he still maintained that they were fighting to protect Philip's holdings from treasonous governors general and the like. Philip, being Philip, banned anyone from studying there. After this, William convened the States General to resign all of his powers. He was being accused by some of using the money raised to enrich himself, and he wanted to quash that talk. Whether this was all just political theater, or just some political theater, the man who at this point had now several times refused offers of dictatorship of the provinces was considered too essential to resign. The assembly offered him a title of governor or regent, with essentially absolute power for everything but taxes and garrisoning troops. That summer, a formal union of government between Holland and Zeeland was announced, with William of Orange Nassau as the head of government, under, of course, Philip II. It was finalized in Delft the following year. William also remarried that year with a noblewoman named Charlotte of Bourbon. She had been sent to a convent, supposedly to keep her Catholic as her mother was a Protestant. There she met a priest who taught her about Calvinism. Whoops. She escaped the convent and lived in the Palatine in eastern Germany. She met William, and despite protests from his allies, he married her, probably sincerely for love rather than political reasons. Toward the end of 1575, the city of Zierixi in Zeeland was besieged by Spanish forces led by Mondragon. William sent a fleet to try and relieve the city, but they fought only to a draw and were unable to help. By early 1576, it was clear that the rebels wouldn't be able to help the city. The Spanish now had footholds in Zeeland and, with Amsterdam and Harlem, in Holland. The territory loyal to William was split apart, with loyalist forces separating southern Zeeland from southern Holland and southern Holland from northern Holland. It must have been overwhelming, and William actually considered just taking every ship they had and carrying whoever wanted to come to some far-off land to start a new nation. But then, in March, Requesens fell ill and died. While Philip quickly named a replacement, his half-brother Don Juan de Austria, it took a long time for him to get on scene. Don Juan wasn't particularly interested in going and made his way from Italy to Madrid first before finally heading up to the Low Countries, but we'll get to his arrival later. With no governor-general in place, William thought perhaps there was an opportunity. Thanks to the Union of Delft, William was able to act with near-supreme authority for Holland and Zealand, and he thought he might be able to get the others to join in with him. But what followed was not at all what William had in mind. It's not really what anyone had in mind. First, in another attempt to aid Xerxi, the Spanish had thrown enough obstacles into the water that sailing up to the city was nearly impossible. Admiral Boissot hadn't been deterred by long odds before and he sailed into the mess to try to make it through. He became stuck and eventually tried to swim to safety, but the hero who had sailed up the former plains outside of Leiden drowned in the attack. 
Not long after, in July, Zurich Z finally surrendered, but its garrison was allowed to leave safely and its citizens were able to pay to prevent a sacking. The Spanish troops occupying the city were not satisfied. They had, again, been years behind in pay. As their officers left for Brussels to try to get some amount of the back pay settled, a mutiny spread. They would no longer be satisfied with promises of pay from the king and his men. Instead, they would just take from the king in his lands. They started with the island of Shawan, where Zerek Z sat. They looted what they could, and then moved into Brabant, looting everywhere they could on the way. They picked up more Spanish soldiers on their way, and by September, even German troops holding the citadel of Antwerp went over to the mutineers' side. Soon, only Brussels was safe from them, other than William's cities in Holland and Zealand, as any Spanish garrison in any town was joining in. Wherever they went, they looted. When people resisted, they were killed. Citizens tried to rise up and fight the Spanish, but without training or even leadership in these little individual rebellions, the Spanish always won, with thousands of peasants dead compared to a handful of soldiers. As the outrages piled up, the people became more outraged. William saw an opening, and he took it. He implored the people to join up to expel the foreign soldiers. His stated aim was a representative government, with the states general coming together from each of the provinces to make decisions, a constitutional monarchy under King Philip. Let's join together and figure out how to fix this. If the sea beggars finally gave William a base of operations in Holland, the Spanish troops brought the other provinces in behind him. In the latter half of 1576, with mutinous Spanish soldiers creating a crisis, a congress assembled at Ghent. They argued about what they would actually put on paper. Between the 17 provinces, most still Catholic, most not at war with Philip, the only thing they all truly agreed on was that the Spanish mutineers needed to be stopped. And all the while, the Spanish mutineers were laying waste to the land. On November 2nd, more than 7,000 Walloon troops appeared before Antwerp to try and keep the city safe. Governor Champagny, the brother of Cardinal Granville, a true Catholic, but one who hated the Spanish at the time, was in charge of the city. He didn't want to let the Walloons in, thinking they wouldn't be of help, but he did eventually. And he barely kept them from sacking the richest city in the region themselves. But Spanish commanders in Antwerp had conspired to aid the attack. Sancho Davila, the commander of the citadel just outside the city, was on the side of the mutineers. When 5,000 Spanish troops arrived, Davila, secure in the citadel that was supposed to protect Antwerp, sent them food and drink. The attack soon commenced, and it didn't take long for the Spaniards to breach the city wall. The citizens fought as long as they could. The defending Walloon forces were not recorded as fighting so well in the battle. Many of the townspeople tried to keep the Spanish at bay, but they were beaten. Champagny kept trying to make stands and fortify different areas, but was soon alone with few people to help him fight. He fled to the Scheldt, where the Dutch fleet was waiting, and he escaped. Antwerp was soon ablaze, and in the end, around 8,000 people were massacred in the city. Of all the horrible events that had been recorded in the Low Countries over the last few decades, this might have been the single worst. This was the Spanish Fury, as it was known, in its most reprehensible form. 
The news traveled fast, and the Congress in Ghent wrapped up quickly. The provinces signed, together with William and Holland and Zealand, a treaty that they would work together to get the Spanish soldiers out of the Netherlands. According to Parker, quote, The collapse of Spanish power in the autumn of 1576 permitted the rebellion to spread to most of the other provinces of the Netherlands. In the south and east, strong Calvinist cells were established and new fortifications were built, complicating Spain's subsequent attempts to regain the areas in revolt, unquote. The Pacification of Ghent, as it was called, was a joint declaration of resistance to the crown. It was for allowing religious freedom in Holland and Zealand, and for the end of Inquisition, so in effect, it tolerated religious freedom everywhere, although it purposefully did not explicitly say that. Other than that, they wanted the expulsion of Spanish troops, and the ability for the States General to meet and make decisions. They would still owe their allegiance to King Philip as Duke of Brabant and all his other titles, but he wouldn't have arbitrary authority. Their ancient agreements and constitutions would be obeyed. That was it. That would make everyone happy. He would still be the sovereign. The low countries would still be subjects of his empire, and he would still take in the revenues from maybe the most lucrative region in Europe. But this is Philip we're talking about here, so you should know by now how he'd received the news. Around that time, the city where the mutiny started, Xerxes, was recaptured by the Zealanders, as the Spanish hadn't stuck around to guard it. Also, right around that time, in disguise, a Spanish nobleman arrived in Luxembourg. It was the new governor-general who had finally made his way up to the Low Countries. Don John, or Don Juan, of Austria, the bastard son of Charles V and Philip's half-brother, had grown up in the royal court alongside his nephew, who was about the same age, the son of Margaret, the Duchess of Parma. His half-brother, King Philip, was fond of John and had sent him to pacify southern Spain against rebellious Moorish citizens in Granada. He was only 23 when he took over command there after the rebels had seen some successes. With the introduction of significantly more Spanish troops to the vicinity, John was able to end that rebellion. After that, he fought with the Holy League against the Turks in the Mediterranean. He was the commander who led the center of the fleet as Spanish, Venetian, Genoese, Papal, and other navies defeated the Turks at the Battle of Lepanto, the first major naval defeat for the Ottomans since a hundred years earlier, prior to Hayred and Barbarossa's day. John of Austria had an outsized personality, and his plan wasn't just to quell the uprising in the Low Countries. It was to quell the uprising in the Low Countries, then take the Spanish troops to England, then rescue and marry the imprisoned Mary Queen of Scots, who Elizabeth had locked up because she was a threat to her throne, and in doing all of this, become the new King of England. Yeah, easy peasy. A dashing adventurer, he was a bit different than his silent adversary. Motley points out, quote, The contrast was striking between the real and the romantic hero. Don John had pursued and achieved glory through victories with which the world was ringing. William was slowly compassing a country's emancipation through a series of defeats, unquote. The recent signature of the pacification of Ghent would set John up to be either an immediate adversary or a potential peacemaker. 
he was in a position to agree to the terms. William knew, though, that even if he did agree, Philip wouldn't really allow him to stop the persecution. He feared the Spanish would come in speaking of peace and then turn around and attack once they had put garrisons everywhere. He said the promise of the departure of Spanish soldiers must be a prerequisite to any discussions. In January, the States General gathered and agreed upon what was called the Union of Brussels. It was essentially a formalization of the pacification of Ghent to strengthen the province's position. Every province other than Luxembourg signed it. It put forth the expulsion of Spanish forces as the primary goal of the Dutch people. The States General presented their agreement to John of Austria. He answered, but he did a great job of remaining vague a trait that he may have learned from his brother Philip. John said the troops would leave, but the estates must be the ones to furnish the rest of their pay, and the Dutch must disarm and disband their soldiers as well. But his vagueness was countered when they asked directly if he would maintain the pacification of Ghent. He said no, because the Spanish troops, the mutinous ones who massacred 8,000 people in Antwerp, were called out as mutinous in the documents. After some negotiations, John agreed to go along with the treaty as long as Catholicism remained the religion of state and that nothing was done to reduce the king's authority. Although these points could be interpreted differently, there was some agreement here. And so, in February of 1577, what was known as the Perpetual Edict was signed. And John even agreed to a departure of Spanish troops by land. This was especially painful for him because it thwarted his secret idea of getting them all on ships and taking them to invade England. William was not as thrilled as you might think, because as much as he desired a peaceful Netherlands, he feared that as soon as things calmed down, the Calvinists would again be the subject of attack, and they would no longer be organized enough to resist. It would be like a reset button on the rebellion. He was, of course, still reading intercepted letters from the king, so he had plenty of reason to feel this way. He saw that war would eventually come to Holland and Zealand, while the other provinces would be occupied before they ever saw war. In a letter to his brother John, William wrote, quote, Whatever appearance Don John may assume to the contrary, tis by no means his intention to maintain the pacification, and less still to cause the Spaniards to depart with whom he keeps up the most strict correspondence possible, unquote. He said that he would only sign the edict, and subsequently Holland and Zealand would only do it, if the States General agreed that if the troops did not leave as promised, they would stop recognition of John as governor and evict the Spanish soldiers themselves by force. John, meanwhile, knew how beloved the Prince of Orange was in the provinces. He wrote to Philip that without William, there would be no rebellion. John tried to sway William by promising full pardons, and that his son, still stuck in Madrid, would inherit all his Dutch titles and lands if he would exile himself to Germany. But he wouldn't bite, and noted that his memories of Egmont and Horn made it difficult for him to believe their word. John finally made his way from Luxembourg into Brussels. He had sent the Spanish troops out of the Low Countries at the end of April, entering Brussels in May. He had kept his word, but was all the while writing to Philip that rebellion was still happening, and that he hated Brussels, the Netherlands, and the Dutch, and that they hated him. 
It was true that William was not satisfied. German mercenaries remained in the provinces under Philip's employment. Citadels that could have been demolished were instead given over to Catholic nobles from the Low Countries who had never wavered in their support of Philip. And the governor, like those before him, started to build a court around him of Spanish and Italian advisors and henchmen instead of trying to work closely with the Netherlanders. In June, a tailor was executed in Mechelen for preaching. John was in attendance and approved, while William wrote to try to dissuade everyone from renewing the persecution. It was clear that even their agreement was allowing for disagreements in what it actually meant, and it was clear that the conflict was not going to simply just end. In July, one of the stranger events of this whole conflict occurred. John had somehow convinced himself that there could be no real peace and that William would never be satisfied. So he went to the citadel of Namur under the pretext that he was meeting the visiting Queen of Navarre, Henry's wife, Margaret of Valois. But after her departure, John, along with a few loyal retainers, secretly entered the fortress and seized the citadel, the citadel of a city where he was already the lawful governor. It was his right to do so, but his violent methods implied that it wasn't. John blamed William for the necessity of this act, and he sent letters to the States General claiming of conspiracies against him. He said William was not fulfilling his part in the pacification of Ghent, and that Holland was trying to overthrow the government. For his own safety, he wrote, they needed to disarm all of Brabant. The assemblies reminded him that he still had to disband his German mercenaries. These very same German mercenaries were then dispatched to try to take the citadel of Antwerp from the Dutch, but were unsuccessful. All foreign troops were soon expelled, and Antwerp became a place that William could now visit safely. Don John screwed up. The great and flashy hero of Lepanto, it seems, couldn't take the slow and steady work of diplomacy, and just sort of flipped out. He had desired peace so that he could take his swashbuckling career to England, or somewhere else, and win a kingdom. But he didn't have enough patience to wait out William, and he panicked, first taking Namur, and then trying to capture Antwerp. He had declared war when it seemed peace was within reach. Rallying the Low Countries against him became easy for William. According to Edmondson, quote, So strongly marked was the orange feeling in the capital that the States General acceded to the general wish that the prince should be invited to come in person to Brussels. Confidence was expressed by Catholics, no less than Protestants, that only under his leadership could the country be delivered from Spanish tyranny, unquote. So William came to Antwerp in September of 1577 and then made his way to Brussels, a city he hadn't visited in over a decade. Greeted like a conquering hero, people lined up for miles to cheer him on. His goal in Brussels was to begin to craft a new form of government, where the States General would make decisions under a royal leader, neither himself nor Philip, who would have minimal power. And he demanded that Don John retire from Namur to Luxembourg, disband all of his troops, agree that the heresy of the Reformation would be allowed, all things that John would never agree to. If John had declared war with his attack on Namur, William accepted it with his response. Besides the loyalists to the crown and the partisans for William, 
There was another group in the Netherlands, the Catholic rebels, who were wary of William getting too much power. They agreed with him on many things, but feared he might be so popular that he'd end up in charge. And then who knows what would happen to the Catholics in the Low Countries. So these men reached out to the Archduke Matthias, the younger brother of the Holy Roman Emperor, and invited him to be the new regent without consulting William. Matthias snuck out of the palace in Vienna in his PJs without letting his brother the emperor know, and arrived in the Netherlands in October. The Prince of Orange was in a bit of a bind. He didn't agree with the choice, but wasn't able to insult the Holy Roman Empire by turning Matthias away, and risk bringing the other Habsburg Empire into the conflict against the Dutch. He also didn't want to just leave him in charge and return to Holland but he realized there was an opportunity, if done properly, to create the state he envisioned with a real constitution under a Habsburg. Negotiations took place, and Matthias was named governor-general by the states as long as he accepted the Union of Brussels. William, with some assistance from England at the negotiating table, was appointed his lieutenant-general. He was also officially appointed to a position in Brabant and Flanders that gave him the level of almost unlimited authority that he already held in Holland and Zealand. War was officially declared by the States General in December when they issued a formal statement which called Don John an enemy of the state and stated he no longer held any authority over them. They pledged again for religious freedom within the Low Countries and reinvigorated the Union of Brussels. In January of 1578, a basic constitution was drawn up, and in Brussels on the 18th, Matthias swore an oath to uphold it, to answer to the States General with an allegiance to the king. Written by William, the real authority rested with the States and with William, who was sworn in as Lieutenant General. William scored another diplomatic victory that month when Queen Elizabeth agreed to lend money to the Netherlands and to send soldiers. William was in his moment of greatest triumph, but it was short-lived. Don John was not idle in this time. He had left the citadel of Namur for Luxembourg, which remained under Spain's authority. Philip, unconvinced by John's many pleadings for more troops, was convinced by the appearance of Matthias. He sent Alexander Farnese, the son of the Duchess of Parma and former regent of the Netherlands, Margaret, up from Italy at the head of a large Spanish army. A papal bull was ordered with the language of a crusade to support John. This army was an experienced one. At this time, the Spanish were considered the best soldiers in the world. Without getting too much into tactics, the Spanish tercios were huge infantry squares of 3,000 men, combined pikemen and musketeers. The Spanish were the best, but as Michael Roberts points out in his influential The Military Revolution 1560-1660, Quote, the mercenary in the middle of a pike square needed little training and less skill. If he inclined his pike in correct alignment and leaned heavily on the man in front of him, he had done almost all that could be required of him. So too with the musketeer. A certain dexterity in loading, a certain steadiness in rank sufficed. One reason why firearms drove out the bow and the lance was precisely this, that they economized on training. Moreover, deep formations dispensed with the need for a large trained corps of officers and required a less high morale, 
since it is difficult to run away with 15 ranks behind you, unquote. While this all minimizes the terror that the Spanish armies probably did strike in the hearts of their enemies, it also teases a bit about those enemies. The Spanish were good because they sprinkled veterans and officers in their tercios. Their honor and bravery acted as glue to keep these massive blocks of men together. The German mercenaries, while some were certainly professional in the sense that they had done it before, may well have been made up of a good amount of unemployed fortune seekers rather than real military men. It starts to make more sense when looking at it this way, why William's mercenary armies were so quick to dissipate and so quick to flee. They might not have been good soldiers because they really didn't need to be. With the new Italo-Spanish army arriving in Luxembourg with Farnese, the combined Spanish forces marched out to engage with the rebels, who had mustered their own army, originally to retake Namur nearby. Evenly sized, they were not evenly matched, as the veteran Spanish soldiers would soon demonstrate. Alexander had taken his cavalry across the river with instructions to wait and not yet engage. But as the armies marched, Alexander saw he was at the rear of the rebel infantry, which was marching haphazardly through some relatively rough terrain. In an instant, he knew there was an opening and charged in with his cavalry and then cut the infantry to pieces. The rebel foot soldiers scattered and tried to run, making easy pickings for the Spanish horsemen. The battle was over before it had even really started. It was a stunning and complete victory for the hero of Lepanto. The army of the States General was slaughtered, many were captured and then executed, and the Spanish were able to march in almost uncontested to the southern Netherlands. Towns quickly were gobbled up back into the Spanish fold. William was able to balance this disaster, the Battle of Jean Bleu, with an agreement reached with Amsterdam about a week later. Amsterdam, a major trading city in Holland, although not as important as it would become, was isolated and blockaded, and its trade suffered. Only William's insistence on its safe treatment kept it from being besieged by the Hollanders. In February, city leaders signed an agreement, similar to one in Utrecht a few months prior, which voluntarily deposed the city government for one that was majority Calvinist instead of all Catholic. It switched sides and did so peacefully rather than having its economy wither. The event was benignly called the Alterati, or Alteration. Soon after, in the remaining royalist towns around Amsterdam, including Harlem, public uprisings booted the city leaders and replaced them with rebel burghers and magistrates. Holland had finally become united as a single state in rebellion. Don John, though, was on a roll in the south, and Philip had given him funds to raise more troops. In July, he brought a large force against the States General Reconstituted Army. This army included English and Scottish forces, French Huguenots, and was waiting for German reinforcements funded by Queen Elizabeth. John wanted to engage before the Germans, numbering 12,000, could arrive, and after a few skirmishes he was able to start a battle. This one went much better for the rebels than Jean Bleu, although it was not nearly as decisive. The rebels forced the Spanish into an orderly retreat, and John eventually withdrew from the area towards Namur. This allowed the rebels to retake some cities around the region. Around the same time, Francis, the Duke of Alençon and Anjou, the brother of the King of France, 
offered his services to the cause. He traveled to Mons, his purpose not entirely clear. Was he there to take the role of regent given to Matthias? Was he there to bring some of the southern provinces over to France in the chaos of it all? His station and the opportunity for a more formal alliance with France, though, outweighed the negatives. William had been communicating with him since before the secret entrance of Matthias onto the scene. With Francis's arrival, while the useless Matthias remained, William was again put in a tough spot, but he preferred what he saw as the stability of the French ally. And unlike Matthias, Francis promised to bring troops. The mess that Francis brought with him was not limited to what might happen in the Netherlands. Philip was, of course, outraged, but so was Queen Elizabeth, who feared a French takeover of the Low Countries more than the old status quo. William worked out an arrangement that Duke Francis signed, which stated that the French prince was there to fight the Spanish tyrant and Don John's invasion. Having gone to Luxembourg and then re-entering the other provinces apparently made the king's appointed governor-general an invader now. And Francis swore to play nice with England and Elizabeth. He was not given Matthias's title, but called the defender of the liberty of the Netherlands against the tyranny of the Spaniards and their adherents. He agreed also to the supremacy of the states general and was named as the governor-in-waiting in case they needed a different sovereign. The Prince of Orange again demonstrated his talent for politics. Francis wasn't actually given any real authority, just a bunch of flattery, and he brought 10,000 or so French soldiers with him. And so, they entered the fall of 1678, with Francis at the head of an army at Mons, swearing to defeat John, while John and the army of the States General eyed each other to see the next move. The next move was made by Don John, who caught a fever, became ill, and died. Before he was gone, though, he appointed his nephew and contemporary, Alexander Farnese, the son of Margaret of Parma, as his successor, at least until Philip could weigh in. Stuck in the Netherlands while scheming to take the throne of England, the dashing hero of the Holy League died after only two years there. In Farnese, who had gone to help John not replace him, Philip found maybe the best regent of all of them. He hadn't yet shown he was a truly excellent commander, but that would come. He wasn't as brutal as Alba, or as willing to placate the nobility like his mother Margaret. And while like Requisens, he knew the carrot could be as helpful as the stick, he was much more effective when events called for the stick. Next time, we'll see what happens when Farnese takes over for the Spanish when Francis enters on the side of the Dutch, but with French, as well as his own interests in mind, and when William and the Dutch finally decide to pull themselves free from the Spanish and Philip for good. Thanks for listening. <laughs>